Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision with Gregory Nielsen. Uh, my name is Gregory Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting. NTC works with nonprofit leaders and organizations in areas including governance, board governance, um, planning, business and strategic planning, and assessment, helping organizations and leaders reach their full potential and translate their vision into reality. Today, I am pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Paul Robinson. Paul is the president and CEO of Home of the Innocents, which is located here in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me. Paul, it's great to have you. You are relatively new to the home. You've been here a couple of years. Right. So I'm just maybe a little over two and a half years here. Okay. Uh, it, uh, some days feels like six weeks. Other days it feels like uh, six years. It just depends. Which is common. Right. And the home is, um, j- we'll talk in detail about the home later on, but if you could just briefly tell us about the mission of the home. Sure. So the Home of the Innocence is a 138-year-old organization that um, helps children and families, uh, really some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Um, our purpose that we just uh, really reassessed as we went through a recent strategic planning process is to enrich the lives of children and families with hope, health, and happiness. Uh, we're really uh, happy with that because it really is what we hope to do. We want every encounter that we have with a child and the family that is in the um, in the background with them to have that enrichment opportunity. It's an amazing mission. And for those of you who aren't in Louisville and aren't familiar with the work of the home, um, it, it really is an anchor nonprofit institution here in Kentucky. Um, and as I drove in the parking lot this morning, Paul, I saw the sign out front that said, uh, Home of the Innocence, the heart of our community. Um, talk to us a little bit more about, about that. Well, so uh, since I've been here, we really have tried to... Uh, to strengthen our branding and our market approach um, because it's so important that the community knows what services that we offer, who we're here to serve. And so part of that has been changing our image a little bit. We can't really show the faces of the children that we serve uh, for confidentiality purposes, but what we've been able to do is to show these wonderful, colorful, pixelated images of children uh, and they always have a smile. And so uh, we are inspired and we hope that the community is inspired by these images that we now have on our campus. And we were uh, honored that someone came up with a suggestion that we um, list ourselves as the heart of the city Mm -hmm. because we've been here for such a long time and we really do uh, great things to help the children of the community. 130 years. It's, uh, I think anytime I'm out in the community and talking to groups about nonprofit organizations in Louisville, everyone seems to have a connection to the home, whether it's they know a family that has benefited from the services or they know someone who has volunteered or donated or given of themselves to the home. So really, um, it, it has to feel good to be a part of an institution that, that is the heart of our, our community. Uh, it does. And I'm, I'm so honored to have been selected to be the president and CEO here. When I applied for the position three years ago, I really never thought that they would consider me to be the leader because I really don't come from this industry. I come from the private sector. Uh, so I was honored that out of 100 people that uh, were considered, they chose me to be the leader to take us into this next transformative era that we're really in right now. We're trying to to determine who we need to be in the future to best serve the children of tomorrow. That's a great segue. Um, We'll talk more about the home and the programs of the home as we go, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about your leadership journey. You mentioned not coming from the nonprofit sector. Are you originally from the Louisville area? I am. I was born and raised here um, and went to um, school to be a doctor of all things. Um, And while I was in 
uh, a very difficult uh, biology degree program at Indiana University, I started working at a bank. And it was really uh, quite a life-altering experience. Uh, I realized that even though I was in school to take organic chemistry and biology, that I really felt compelled to work with numbers and finance. And so as soon as I got done with my undergraduate, came back here, went to University of Louisville to get my MBA. Um, and then I went into business with my father. We uh, started a franchise of Papa John's Pizza, which was you know, a really big up-and-coming thing back in the early 90s. I remember. And so um, this territory was taken, uh, but the place that was really our second home, which is the Florida Panhandle, um, is where we vacationed all the time. So we purchased the rights to that area. So um, one store turned into 21 over the course of uh, 23 years. Um, so one of the larger franchise groups across the country. Um, we moved to Northwest Florida and I lived there with my family for 14 years as we built that franchise uh, from the beginning um, and very proud of the things that we did there. We were um, rated a top franchise group many, many times by our franchisor, Papa John's International. Um, and a lot of times when I'm talking about this, I, I think the real reason, the two secrets to our success on that really were one, we were very committed to doing it the right way. We were committed to quality. We were committed to doing it the way it was supposed to be done. A lot of people sidestep measures because there's cost savings in that and Absolutely. there's time savings. But with the Papa John's brand, it is very much built on better ingredients, better pizza. So we embrace that wholly. That translated over into great customer experiences and that helps with you know future sales. But really the bigger thing was the culture that we built. Um, the the team that we had, you know, with 21 stores and a support staff and multi-unit uh, uh, operators uh, was really built around everybody was a part of our work family. We wanted everybody to be a part of decision making and to help us achieve our goals. And we did some things that were pretty incredible. We had managers in our group that were with us 16 years, 20 years. Uh, both of my multi-unit supervisors were with me for 18 plus years each. That is unheard of in the restaurant industry because there's such a turnover. And I think the reason that they stayed is we took good care of our people. They felt like they were a part of a very collaborative team. And um, we had great results as, result, as a result of that. And I think that's what brought about the next kind of chapter is uh, because we were such a great group, uh, we were approached multiple times about selling. Uh, and in late 2015, um, we had multiple requests to sell. And we really weren't even for sale. But the request just got to be so aggressive that we finally had to step back and think about, gosh, is this something that we would be interested in doing? And so we did. Uh, we uh, entered into a sales agreement to sell the company after 23 years. Um, and Papa John's International ended up purchasing our stores from us. And I think it was because we were a good uh, acquisition. We were a nice addition to their corporate uh, structure, but also they they knew the quality of our work. They knew what they were purchasing. And I'm very proud to say even in today's current environment with the Papa John's brand kind of under fire, sales down, our market continues to be the number one market in the country. And that had to feel good to have that uh, that approach that you had invested in, the culture, the team approach, to have it valued by so many potential buyers. Um, it, it was very, uh, very validating. It was very nice to, I mean, we really, again, we weren't for sale, but to have people approaching us really meant we must be doing something right. 
but honestly, really the best reward for me is just knowing that the team that we assembled and that we trained for 23 years is still intact now, almost three years later, and they're still performing uh, just as well as they did when we sold them, which I think must be a testament to a really good company. Because culture sticks, right? When you build a culture and you invest in that culture, whether it's in the nonprofit sector or in the for-profit sector, that tends to be an enduring legacy or a part of the identity of the organization. It does. Um, and, and you're right. Culture takes a long time to, to build and to, to resonate. Um, and so what took really 20 years to put into place now, three years later, is still very much there. Um, but I think you, that's a, that's a good lesson for people to think about. As I walked into this organization, um, two and a half years ago, of course that began a cultural transformation that we are just two and a half years into. And I think people get impatient that they want things to reach the end point. Right. There really is never an end point in culture, right? Culture is always evolving. It's always changing. It's always transforming into what it needs to be. And, um, I, I am committed to this organization that the culture change that we're under right now will be going on as long as I'm here. Exactly. Because so. it's a building process and it's always a it's always going to be a building process. And that's part of what um, keeps things challenging for nonprofit leaders um, and, and keeps us coming back day after day is is that um, ability to, to put another block in the foundation each day. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, so, um, so we sold the stores, uh, and so once the stores were sold, uh, I really was faced with quite a challenge of thinking about, okay, now as a 45-year-old, what am I going to do in this next chapter of my career? And what I had done while I was a business owner is I had volunteered for several nonprofits. Um, the biggest one was Ronald McDonald House Charities of Northwest Florida. And I was on their board for 12 years. I was their board chair, their treasurer, uh, their uh, endowment campaign uh, manager. Um, and so when we knew we were going to move back to Louisville, that, that decision was clear because our family was from here. Um, that's when I found out that the Home of the Innocents was getting ready to find their next leader. Uh, my predecessor had been here for 25 years and he announced that he was retiring. Um, and I really thought long and hard about whether or not this would be the right fit for me. Um, and after a week of talking about it incessantly, my wife and my mom and dad said, oh my gosh, you just need to apply. Because I, I was very excited. I felt very um, called after I read uh, the job posting, but I was just a little concerned that would they take somebody from the private sector who had a passion for nonprofit, but come to find out that's exactly what the board was looking for. Um, we have grown significantly here over the last uh, 20 years in particular, uh, we've grown to 28 services, a very large nonprofit with a budget this year in excess of $41 million. The campus that you mentioned is uh, over 21 acres, 17 buildings. Um, our team consists of uh, over 600 team members. So very large, complex um, nonprofit. And the board was really looking for somebody with a business background that could come in to really help provide stability on the sustainability side of really what we need to focus on, but to have a passion for the support that was needed for the team members 
and for the culture transformation that needed to happen. I love hearing about your background. One of one of my favorite parts of interviewing nonprofit leaders is just seeing the diversity of past experiences that they have, past majors. I spoke with a nonprofit leader yesterday um, who had an arts background, who had an art history degree as an undergrad. And I think that that's what makes the sector so strong is that diversity of backgrounds and past experiences that people bring to their nonprofit leadership. And I think the uniqueness of your your background with Papa John's and in the for-profit sector, um, has that benefited you in your early years here at the home? Uh, it has. Uh, in fact, I just spoke to uh, a group of uh, new team members yesterday. We have uh, bi-weekly onboarding. And in my conversation with each of these groups, I always talk about my background. And I do that because I want them to understand really what makes me tick. Because as the leader of the organization, I want them to know if they know what wires me, they're going to know the direction that we're headed and they're going to know how I want to get there. And so I, I spend some time talking about my private sector experience. But I really talk about my passion for choosing to be here and arming myself with all those things that made me successful in the private sector. And then they have my commitment that really the primary reason why I'm here is twofold. It is to position the organization to be sustainable for the long-term future. And second, to provide a culture of training and support for our team members um, so that their experience can be elevated to as high as it possibly can be, because we know that their experience is always going to be better than that of those that they serve. So if we can elevate the experience of every team member here to just be incredible, that means the outcomes for the children and the families we serve is going to improve as well, because it's going to resonate. Um, the nurse that is taking care of a child in our uh, skilled nursing facility, um, if she comes to work feeling very engaged and empowered, it is going to resonate to that child that's medically complex. To the resident counselor that's working in our residential treatment program, if they come to work and they feel trusted and they feel empowered and they feel um, that there's an element of excellence to the work that they do, then that child that's in our residential treatment program, their experience is going to elevate. And I take that very much to heart. That is the most important reason why we're here. And is that, I imagine, that's part of the culture, the building of the culture here at the home. So, I mean, obviously a multi-million dollar organization, you have hundreds of staff members. Um, the fact that you carve out time in your calendar for onboarding and to speak to all new employees, um, is that part of your vision of building the culture here? It is. Um, and, well, I think onboarding can be such a uh, nerve-wracking time for a brand new person, right? They walk into an organization, they don't know anyone, they don't know what their role is going to be, they don't know the lay of the land. And within the first hour of them being here, I felt very strong about the fact that they needed to meet me. They needed to spend about 45 minutes with me so I could very clearly articulate for them what our vision is, what our core values are, what our purpose is, and then they can understand, okay, this is the organization that we've joined. This is where we're headed. And we've now heard directly from the CEO. We know his commitment to this culture of support and what he's going to help provide to us. And it seems like they always feel much more assured after I've had that time with them. And that's just the beginning. Of course, you know, they've got, uh, they're onboarding for weeks and months to come after that. But I'd like to think that that sets the proper tone for the proper orientation that we're really putting um, in the organization that, you know, we want this culture of support to be overarching and it has to start on day one and it has to continue every single day. Right. 
Now, you mentioned that when you were down in Florida, you were a board member of Ronald McDonald House, Charities, and others. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I do with nonprofit organizations is around building and sustaining a dynamic nonprofit board. I, I guess I'm curious, what is it that you would take from your past board experience that has informed your leadership style here at the home? So you've kind of crisscrossed from board member to um, chief executive, and, and those are that's a that's an interesting um, interesting dynamic, an interesting crisscross. Uh, it is, and I, and I tell you, really, I, I lean heavily on my nonprofit or my private sector experience, but I also lean very heavily on my board experience from primarily Ronald McDonald House Charities of Northwest Florida. When I was the board chair, I walked in and about four months later, the executive director quit. Uh, <laughs> still a very good friend because she might listen to this. So I, uh, and, and so I was uh, faced with you know something that really is, is quite uh, uh, stressful, finding the next executive director of the charity. That experience really set into motion um, the dependency that the the charity really was in for me as the leader during that transition time, finding the next best executive director for the organization, but then working with them to set them up for success. So I think about all of that as I then walked into the door here thinking about I was that person that the board chose and that transition, how difficult that can be on an organization. So I leaned back and thought about that same experience being on the flip side of that and what was good and what was bad about it and really tried to right. to, to, to draw from that. So um, I, I think that, um, that that experience really has been quite, uh, quite formative for me. Um, I would also say that um, it really is helpful for me. I know what it is like to be a board member and how you like to be informed about decisions so you can do the proper role of governance, mm-hmm. how you don't want to get pulled down into the micromanagement of the organization because that would be inappropriate. Um, how important it is to be connected to the mission. And I know what we did at the board level there, and I really have tried to bring that into our board experience here. So as an example, um, at the end of every board meeting at Ronald McDonald House, or I'm sorry, at the very beginning of every board meeting, we started a family interaction where a family would come in and speak to us so that the board members can feel connected to the mission. Yes. That was missing. That was not the case here when I walked in. So now at the end of every board meeting here at Home of the Innocence, we showcase one of our 28 programs and we give a mission moment. And I've really gotten a lot of positive feedback from our board members on that, that with so many different programs and so many different people that are impacted, it's important for us to remain grounded to why we are all here and let that be the very last thing that we think about. And so that is, that's been a nice enhancement to our board meeting. That's an interesting um, interesting juxtaposition. I hear a lot of nonprofit organizations that do that at the outset of the board meeting, have their mission moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, having it at the end presents a different dynamic and it, it sends board members out into the community with that being the last thought and feeling that they have from the board meeting. Is, is that why you, why you made that decision? Well, I think, you know, you you get into a board meeting, there's an awful lot of logistics and, you know, financials and program overview and analytics that have to be reviewed. And I think ultimately all of that supports the main reason why we're all here, which is the mission of the organization. Right. So I want the board and I want my executive uh, team that is at our board meetings as well. I want everybody just to leave that hour, hour and a half meeting to know, okay, this brings us back. This is our this is our North Star. Yes. This is why we're here. And this is why we all continue to do incredible things together to serve 
tomorrow's children that are going to need us. One of the things I loved hearing you say is that when you were a board chair at Ronald McDonald House, um, you felt that weight of responsibility to not only select the next CEO down there, um, but also to put in place the structure, the infrastructure and support for that CEO. So when I work with boards, um, a lot of times I talk about one of the duties of board members being to select and support the CEO. And a lot of times it's easy for board members to go through a search process or to hire a search firm. Um, but that part two, that second part of supporting the CEO um, is sometimes where boards can struggle. So how did you kind of come to that realization? And what are some of the things that you put in place for a new CEO that may have carried over to your thinking here at the home? Well, so with when, when I was at Ronald McDonald House, the former executive director had been there for 12 years. She did just an incredible job and the organization really evolved around her success. So with her departure, there was just this, the oxygen kind of left the room because people thought, oh my gosh, how are we going to exist with her departure? So with the new person coming in, I knew they were walking into some very big shoes and it was going to have to be an environment where they felt this could be what they wanted it to be. Because when you re- when you succeed somebody that has been there for a long time and they've been very successful, there's a high failure rate yes. because everybody is always holding you to that standard and that watermark. And so with the new executive director, um, I wanted her in my um, weekly and monthly uh, interactions with her, I wanted her to know this is now her turn. This is her direction. This is her vision. And giving her the runway that she needed to be successful um, and, that, and that sometimes is hard to do because you have to you have to be able to delegate that responsibility and then you've got to have trust in the person that you've hired and you have to give them the resource that they need. And that's exactly what we did. We gave her the runway that she needed and she has now been there for seven plus years. And guess what? They now are thinking she is that new watermark because she has ascended up to do just incredible things. Um, and so when I walked in the door here, I replaced somebody who had been the CEO here for 21 years. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I heard, you've got big shoes to fill. I mean, I to the point where really I just hated hearing that. It, it can be daunting. It can, but he did incredible things. My predecessor raised over $65 million to build this beautiful campus, to expand our services to 28, um, to get us to where we are. I mean, that's incredible, incredible work. But... What I what I tried to do when I walked in is I'm not trying to replicate that. That's not my legacy. That was his legacy. I think my legacy is what I think I was called here to be, which is to bring that culture of support to the team. So that's probably not as glamorous as building $65 million worth <laughs> of buildings. But my team members, I think, would tell you they're so happy that that is my focus because right. to be here 20 years from now, 50 years from now, the team must feel supported. They must be engaged. They must be empowered. And if all of that happens, we will do incredible things into the future. And so that's what I'm hoping my my legacy is going to be when I'm no longer here. And you've seen that culture can be an enduring legacy. So it, it's very different, as you mentioned, from a building you know that, that stands for 50 years. But culture, in many ways, can be just as enduring as a physical structure. It can. And, and, and honestly, in some cases, culture takes longer to build than just physically building a building, uh, and it takes more to sustain it. I mean, building a building is one thing, but building something that's going to thrive and do well as a uh, organic uh, body, a team, 
really takes a lot of effort, a lot of focus, and you have to be consistent about it for a long period of time. You can't just say, go be a team and you're right. done. I mean, that, that work goes on day after day after day. Um, and that takes commitment. And how many staff members do you have here at the home? We have just right around 650. Uh, when I walked in the door two and a half years ago, we had about 575. So we've grown quite a bit. Um, okay. We had a lot of open positions. You know, when you're in nonprofit work, um, unfortunately, you know, there's there's a, a perception that we don't pay as aggressively as our private sector counterparts. Um, and that is the case in some ways. But um, I think one of the things that we've tried to do here uh, in the past year or two is we have uh, done some market uh, adjustment uh, data on all of our um, 165 job descriptions. Uh, we are working to adjust uh, those pay rates to market because, again, if we're going to truly support our team members, we are going to have to be more aggressive about the rates of pay. And so I'm happy to say, and, and my team hopefully would would uh, echo this, um, that we are about a third of the way through that work and hope to complete that in the next two years. So I'd like to explore that a little bit because a lot of times I talk to nonprofit leaders, particularly executive directors, CEOs, and they talk about how challenging it can be to work with their boards to convince them of the necessity to pay market rate, to provide competitive benefits, professional development, and other experiences for team members. Has that been your experience here, or what has been what has allowed you to successfully um, be able to adjust some of those positions? Well, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I've got a very supportive board. We have a, a large board of 32, and from the day I walked in the door here, they have been extremely supportive of the work that I'm trying to do. Um, we put into measure right after I started a um, engagement survey that was not in place before I arrived. So we were able to uh, ascertain a baseline of uh, the true engagement of our average team member. And I think that spoke to the board. We openly shared the results of that so they could see really what our areas of opportunity were. The biggest area of opportunity in that baseline survey was compensation and benefits. And so I think you know data makes great decision making. And so the data sharing that with the board was probably a really good first step. So we did that. And then the board, knowing the success that I had in my uh, private sector business, allowed me the runway that I needed, very similar to what I did with the CEO at, right. at uh, Ronald McDonald House, very right. really similar parallel right. there. They allowed me the runway that I needed to um, advance that effort. And so in the second year engagement survey, we saw the scores improve. And we're getting ready um, to uh, go to survey again in January. And when that happens, we're hoping very much to see those scores continue to move. So I think while we were making an investment in more salary dollars, we've seen a reduction in turnover. We've seen an increase in engagement. We've seen the number of vacant positions go down. That translates over to a financial impact to the organization as well. So Absolutely. every time you flip a position, it costs you money. Every time a position goes unfilled, there's wear and tear on the other team members that have to step in and do the work. So, um, yes, we're spending more on salary and payroll, but I'd like to think long term that that investment is going to pay off where we're going to be more stable as an organization. And long term, the, again, the experience of the team member, if it is heightened, is going to improve the outcomes of the children and families we serve. What about professional development with a staff that size? Um, how do you ensure that they have access to the professional development resources that they need to to grow in their career and to and to see that investment from the organization back into their their skill set and what they bring to the organization? 
Another great question. So when I arrived here, we did not have a true dedicated training and development area. Uh, we had kind of pocket siloed efforts that uh, were supporting various parts of the organization. Um, after we took that first survey, it was very clear there was just a thirst for training and development. Mm -hmm. So we created about a year and a half ago, a centralized training department. We hired a director uh, of that area. Uh, he now has a, a full complement uh, team with him. So we're about a year and a half into providing a pretty robust calendar of training and development offerings that are available for all of our team members, mm -hmm. regardless of where they work and the nature of the work that they do. Um, and it's, it's a pretty nice uh, array of things. So, you know, we have a, a class that uh, provides CPR training. We have a class that provides mindfulness meditation training uh, to help with stress reduction and work. Of course, we have lots of clinical offerings. We have leadership offerings. We have managerial offerings. Um, but that calendar is really being built around what our team members are telling us that they want to have. That's our internal efforts. That, that is all free to any team member here uh, for what they want to take. But in addition to that, we know we also have to provide external offerings. So we have added additional budget dollars for development offerings um, where someone can go get a CEU opportunity, or maybe we can uh, bring one in here and uh, offer it to both the external and the internal world. Um, I have tried one of my goals with people that report directly to me is to work with them on a weekly basis on their development plan. And so I, I have open conversation with them often about what do you need to do to continue to develop and learn. And I feel like if I start at the top by encouraging that, that that is going to transcend down throughout the entire organization that they as good leaders are going to encourage the same of their managers. The managers underneath of them are going to encourage that of our service delivery and support areas. Mm -hmm. So we continue to build and foster that culture of support and development. So when you're at the home and you have obviously a robust uh, donor base and, and base of community supporters that are invested in your work, a lot of times I talk to nonprofit organizations about salary and benefits and about professional development opportunities. And the fear that they have is that sometimes that gets labeled as quote unquote overhead. Um, how have you as a nonprofit leader combated that perception um, and been able to continue to invest in those areas um, during these times? Well, so, you know, if someone inside of one of our programs attends a training, um, we are expensing that to that particular program because it is a direct support to the effectiveness of that program. So, but there are some training and development costs that are really agency-wide and that would be seen as overhead, back to your original question. Um, that is something that I do hear a lot of. You know, people don't want to fund overhead support and I, I think it's the old uh, chicken and the egg uh, analogy. <laughs> and I think that, yes, um, there is overhead cost and yes, we wanna manage that as wisely as we possibly can. We wanna be good stewards of our donors' support and the dollars that they give us. But a good donor recognizes that not only do you support programs and support, but you're also in need of supporting some of these overarching things that make the organization better and stronger. We cannot do what we do as an organization if we don't invest in training and development. And yes, that is an overhead expense. And so again, I have open dialogue with the donor if they have a concern about it, I use some specific examples because I think if you can explain to them, like as, this is a great example, um, in 2019, we are getting ready to roll out a three-year implementation 
for a new trauma-informed care model. We're going to be the very first in the city of Louisville to have this model. It's evidence-based. It's expensive. But it is going to be transformative not only to the team members here, but all the children and families that we serve. It puts us on a common language for what trauma looks like. That is overhead, yes, but we are going to be so much stronger as an organization as a result of it. And when I give that example and I talk about a couple of specifics, the average donor no longer has a concern about it. So it's about getting past that label of overhead, getting past that kind of surface understanding of how we are evaluating or how we um, measure nonprofit effectiveness and getting to that deeper level of why it's important to invest in people uh, and programs as well. And I think, you know, the, the key there is I think you, you have to tell stories. And by that, I mean, you have to paint a very good illustration for the donor so they understand it's not just a dollar going into this bucket. They understand the rich tapestry of the organization as a whole. Everything is much more complicated than just a simple peg it for what it is type of thing. You really just have to do a good job as the executive leader of the organization to share the, the vision the direction and how you're going to get there. And the, the, the typical donor really gets that once you do that. Um, mm-hmm. But that's our responsibility, right? That's what we have to do. We ask them to support us. They, we ask them to invest in us. We must then make them feel good about their investment. Right. So you use the word investment there, and that brings me back to your corporate background and um, obviously now your position in the nonprofit sector. I want to put you on the spot a little bit because if you read um, – lots of nonprofit publications or articles out there. They talk about kind of comparing and contrasting um, the for-profit sector and the nonprofit sector. And one is more difficult or less difficult or more challenging. Um, having been in both, um, I'm not going to ask you which is, which is better, which is worse, which is more difficult, but what have you, what have you seen now that you've been on both sides of it? I get asked that question all the time because I have a very unique uh, position to have worked as a leader on both sides of that. I used to think being a business owner in the private sector was extremely challenging, and it was. Yes. But I will tell you, uh, being an executive leader in the nonprofit um, industry um, has been more challenging. And I think that's because resources are stretched uh, much more thin because you are so dependent on donor dollars, just recognizing it for for what it is. But also it's very much about mission work. So because you don't have the resources that maybe somebody in the private sector would have, you have to align your vision for the organization and the way you're gonna get people to engage in that around their purpose, why they're here, why we've all chosen to serve, who we're impacting, and that type of work um, is very tedious. It's very time um, intensive, um, and it's very it's very emotionally um, taxing. And so I find um, really probably seventy five percent of my average day here is spent on engaging our team in the work that we're doing, getting the resources that we need in order to achieve our mission, and those are two things that I really never had to spend that much time doing when I was in the private sector. Right. But I will tell you in the end, I feel so much more rewarded at the end of every day. You know, when I was a business owner, I, you know, would celebrate at the end of an accounting period or at the end of the year, the financial results that we had or the collaborative uh, goals that my team had worked on. Here, though, at the end of every day, and I just said this yesterday to our onboarding group, how fortunate all 650 of us are when we leave this campus every single day 
we drive away and we see these beautiful, uh, colorful images of the kids on our murals, we get to say that we impacted the lives of hundreds of children every single day. Right. That is much more inspiring than working in the private sector. And it, it is inspirational, but it's difficult too. I mean, there's, you know, you're, you're trying to produce results uh, and impact on a number of different levels. You know, there's obviously a financial impact and, and to keep the lights on in an organization, you have to have um, financial results. But then, as you mentioned, just the ability to impact the life of a child, um, you know, it's for a nonprofit leader, it's trying to find the balance between those two and see the value in all of them um, really presents a rich challenge. It does. And I, and I will tell you, I think uh, one of the things internally that has been challenging for me is, you know, there's two lenses that everything is looked at. One is a money lens and another one is a mission lens. And the team members here, I think, as they were getting to know me and even as they continue to get to know me over the last two and a half years, I think that they think I come in and I'm making all of my decisions through that money lens because I come from the private sector. You can't, in a nonprofit, make all your decisions through one or the other of those two lenses. As a good leader, you need to be making decisions looking through both. And so if we are aligning our mission and we're making decisions that way, but we're also aligning fiscal sustainability and our decision making, then we are being really good stewards to the community. We're being good stewards to our donors. We're being good stewards to our team members. And so that I really take that very much to heart. I look and make every decision that I make. I make dozens of decisions every single day through both of those two lenses. And I think that touches on something that um, a friend of mine once said is that sustainability, uh, particularly in the nonprofit sector, sustainability is a journey. It's not a destination. And I think sometimes there's a perception that an organization has achieved sustainability as though it is a, a singular place that you get to and are there forever. Um, when in reality, that 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 journey is something something a little bit different. I'd love it if it was a destination and you just arrived there and you were done. But you're absolutely right. Every single day, there is work to be done on sustainability. It's like being on a cruise ship that never reaches port. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, it, it, and we know that. And that's just part of the, the nature of the work that we do. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, you know some of the exciting things that are happening at the home right now. Well, so we are about a year into a, a three-year strategic plan that the board worked with me on. Uh, we uh, rewrote last year when uh, the board worked with me on this, we rewrote our vision. So uh, I mentioned that we're 138 years old. Um, so our vision takes us 12 years into the future uh, to when we will celebrate our 150th um, anniversary. So all of our work in our uh, three and four year strategic plan uh, buckets is aligning us to get to that vision destination. So in that vision, uh, we again are um, trying to be a culture of support uh, and engagement for our team members. We want to be more financially sustainable for the long term of the organization. We want to embrace technology and innovation to be more efficient with the way that we do our work. Um, and we want to improve the outcomes for the children and the families that we serve and that is going to come through growth of our services and growth throughout the state. So with all of that work, um, right now we are focusing um, heavily on technology. So um, as we've been growing a lot over the last 15, 20 years to get onto this campus, our focus has been on physical plant, building buildings, growing programs, growing services. There wasn't a lot of thought for the technology component that needed to be there to better support us. So a good portion of our budget 
a good portion of our um, our focus has been on how can we be more efficient with the solutions that we have in place? How can that drive more innovative ways for our team members to get the work done that they're trying to get done? And again, that's going to impact uh, the outcomes of the children and the families that we serve. So Absolutely. Um, it's probably not a real glamorous thing to, to say that we're working on, but um, I think the average team member here is going to be very excited over the next year or two as we begin to consolidate our electronic health records into um, as few as possible. Um, we're getting ready to change. We're in the process right now of our financial reporting and accountant uh, solutions to, again, drive um, innovation and efficiency. Um, and then and probably in the next couple of years, there's going to be more assessment that is going to be done that's going to help uh, guide us towards what does the community need from us? Because we want to make data-driven decisions about where we need to be in the state and what services does the community need from us that we need to add to our current continuum of services. So we're kind of doing a lot of, um, we'll call it internal plumbing right now, <laughs> doing assessment work, doing technology, infrastructure work. But again, that's all part of some of that transformation that we need right. to be doing to be strong to serve the children of tomorrow. There's a couple of things you mentioned there that are fascinating to me. Talk to talk to our listeners a little bit about how you made the decision to set a specific time frame uh, when you established your vision. You mentioned 12 years. Um, one of the things that I talk to nonprofit organizations about when we're doing mission, vision, and values work is that a vision is time-bound. And a lot of times we have the tendency to think of our vision as some indeterminate time in the future. Maybe it's 100 years from now. But how did you make that decision to really put a uh, put a timestamp on it, which puts some some urgency and pressure on the organization? Gosh, I would love to take credit for that. Uh, but I, I have to give credit to Karen Wonderland of the Wonderland Group. Uh, she helped to facilitate our strategic planning. Um, and she dared us to dream big. And she dared us to dream out. And so she really encouraged us to really think about 10, 12, 15 years out, because I think, you know, we tend to kind of pull ourselves into what's comfortable. Right. But when you're really dreaming about vision and you want to have big, audacious goals, you have to be, you have to get comfortable with dreaming so far out that you can't even figure out how you think you're going to get there. And so she really encouraged us to really think big. And so we did. So that's how we, we kind of started dreaming like 12, 15 years out. And then I think, Somebody on my team, or, or maybe I even thought of this, started thinking, well, this could correlate with our 150th anniversary, which is going to be a big milestone for the organization. Oh, absolutely. Big milestone for the community. Yes. As a whole. And so that that's kind of how that came to be. And so um, I love one of our board members when we were doing our visioning exercise, his dream for us 12 years from now was, what if we no longer existed? Because honestly, we're here because the community needs us. But right. how wonderful would it be that there would no longer be a need in our community for children that are abused, abandoned, or neglected, or children that are medically complex. And so with that kind of being the dream, then we set into motion, you know, what we need to do to continue to serve the community's children. So unfortunately, the, the community is going to continue to need us, and that's okay. We will be prepared to be what the community needs us to be for the foreseeable future. But that's just such a wonderful blend of both dreaming um, you know, thinking big, thinking bold, uh, but also putting, as you mentioned, putting in place the structures and putting in place all of those different components from electronic medical records to accounting systems that help you get to that point. Really marrying those two um, is challenging for a leader, uh, but also so necessary to achieve that vision. 
Well, so if you think you've got a 12-year big journey that you're on, and then you start to break it up. And so our current strategic plan is three years. So we're on a three-year journey towards the final destination. And then we're going to readjust. And then we'll take another three or four-year journey. And, and it really helps to break it up into bite-sized pieces. So just a year now into the strategic plan, I'm able to start to see how we could make that vision a reality. It Absolutely. seems easier now than it did a year ago. And I'm sure if I spoke to you again in another year, I'll probably tell you that it seems even a little bit more doable. And that's the beautiful thing about having a vision. You agree where you want to go, and then you put steps into place that begins to measure what gets measured gets done. And I love that quote from um, from Jack Welch uh, at uh, GE. I mean, I just think that that's just such a good good way to orient your work. Well, I tell you what, what we should do is get together a year from now, um, and we'll see how much progress has been made. And I have a feeling that you'll be a lot farther down that road um, on the 12-year journey that you're on. I hope so. Um, before we wrap up, Paul, I just want to give you a chance. Our listeners have learned an awful lot about you, an awful lot about the home. Um, for anyone who's interested in getting more information or finding ways to join you on this journey, uh, whether it's as a volunteer, as a donor, as a supporter, um, tell our listeners how they might be able to get some more information. Thank you. Uh, so our website at uh, homeoftheinnocents.org uh, is, is a very uh, robust site that gives uh, the uh, visitor quite a few opportunities uh, to determine what's the best way that they would like to support us. Um, so there's lots of volunteer opportunities that are listed there. Uh, there are ways to fund or invest in our mission. Uh, and there's many different ways that uh, uh, somebody could do that. Um, there are ways to get involved, whether it's in a committee assignment or potentially a board assignment. Uh, but quite honestly, um, we served a little over 11,300 children and family members uh, last year. And we know that that number is going to increase significantly this year. We need more support from the community, and the community has always been so supportive of what we do. But as we grow that um, to the average person that's listening, um, if they are interested in our mission, if they're interested in uh, what they've heard me talk about, we would love for them to visit our website, reach out and contact us, and we would love to provide them a tour and talk with them further about ways that they, from their interest level, could help support our uh, vision for the future. Wonderful. Paul, I want to thank you for your time. Um, and inspiration this morning. I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure everyone else has too. Again, thank you, Paul Robinson, President and CEO of Home of the Innocents. Uh, and this is Gregory Nielsen, President and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting. For more information on NTC, go to www.nielsenconsults.com. Thank you.